Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of Coogee Voice. Today we're talking with Jan Castles, a multi-award-winning filmmaker and cinematographer, activist and eastern suburbs local. In today's show we talk about her most recent film, When the Camera Stopped Rolling, which is featuring in Sydney Film Festival. We also talk about her wonderful and great inspiring work as a local activist. You're listening to Coogee Voice. We made this, you know, me and my editor and, and my team, we made this from the bottom up and so we were able to really respond and whenever it wasn't working, we just go, what's wrong with that? And often the film kept demanding more and more honesty, more and more personal truth because that's where the best story was. So I just kept following that impulse and this is where it's led me. Well, because Australia is a small economy, it is not going to be sustaining just to rely on ticket sales. So the the Australian industry has always and will continue to need government support. Jane, welcome to Coogee Voice. How are you going today? Thank you. I'm going really well and really happy to be here. It is our absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Before we get into talking about your latest documentary and your really wonderful career, how has lockdown been for you? Well, I guiltily have to admit that um, apart from the death and devastation happening around the world, I actually enjoyed it. Um, I'm a bit of a recluse. And so I actually quite liked being less social. Um, I'm un- I live under the flight path and the plane stopped, so it was really quiet. And um, I got to really focus on, um, you know, this film, finishing the film um, with a bit more peace and quiet. So, yeah, and then, you know, I got vaccinated, so that was good. And, yeah, so and also it was, you know, I know climate change has not, you know, there's not been much of a dint in it, but it was a little bit, you know, it would it would have been worse, I think, for the world if planes have been flying and everyone was travelling all over the place during that time. I know there have been some really beautiful pictures of places like Venice where dolphins have come back and you've actually seen that when you have less human intervention how quickly it can be for our environment to regenerate. And I think that is actually a really comforting thing because particularly, and we'll talk about your activism, environmental activism, I think sometimes when we have conversations around climate change, it seems big and it seems like we can't actually do anything. But we showed that in a really short amount of time, a lot can change. And I hope for people that, for me in particular, gave me a real sense of, hope about the future and what actually can be done in a relatively short amount of time if we focus on it. Absolutely. I mean, nature is very resilient, thankfully. And yeah, we didn't see our economies collapse, you know, there was a bit of, you know, a bit of instability, but nature, nature came back. Nature came back and let's make more of that. Let's make more room for that to happen. What is it that drew you to the eastern suburbs? Oh, it has to be the water, the horizon. You know, I lived in the inner west for most of my adult life and um, I moved here about six years ago and I'm just like, 
every day I think, why didn't I come here earlier and I'm never going back? You know, just having nature at such close proximity, it really allows my my soul to kind of thrive and my creativity to, um, you know, regenerate and to be really just nourished by, I mean, nature is so nourishing on a, on a creative and spiritual level. So it's a total no-brainer. Um, and like Maroubra Beach, anyone who lives near Maroubra Beach or has come to it, you know, it just allows you to drop into another kind of realm and out of that, you know, really directive thinking mind and go into a more creative space. So it's been perfect. Now, you're a multi-award winning filmmaker and cinematographer. You're an activist. There is a lot for us to unpack here. I really want to start, though, with your most recent film, When the Camera Stops Rolling, a new feature documentary. It's an incredibly raw and revealing film and I want to take this opportunity to say thank you for sharing this story. Why did you want to tell it? Well, interestingly, I actually didn't want to tell that story when I started to make the film. I had some other idea. But the film had a bit of a mind of its own and, um, you know, when we were applying for funding and, you know, getting people to come on board, it just was where the film wanted to go and it wanted to go towards this story of my mother and me and, well, you know, what the story is about. And, you know, my biggest kind of role was to keep listening to the film as we made it. You know, we made it from the ground up and it's, it's very different. Often films are made very top down, like you have a plan and then you execute the plan. We made this, you know, me and my editor and, and my team, we made this from the bottom up and so we were able to really respond and whenever it wasn't working we just go, what's wrong with that? And often the film kept demanding more and more honesty, more and more personal truth because that's where the best story was. So I just kept following that impulse and this is where it's led me. When the Camera Stopped Rolling is uh, being released at the Sydney Film Festival, can you tell us a little bit more about the documentary and when is it being released? When can people see it? Okay, so we're premiering at the Sydney Film Festival in early November. It'll have two screenings uh, at Event Cinemas on George Street and at the Chevelle Cinema in Paddington. Then we're actually going to take a little bit of a pause and our commercial release is going to happen in mid to late March next year. And that's mostly because there's this, there's this massive backlog of these blockbuster films that were made during, you know, COVID and, you know, couldn't be released. So we're just going to take a bit of breather and then we will kind of build slowly up to our um, commercial release, which will be in the capital cities across Australia. And um, we're negotiating deals at the moment. And we're also partnering with lots of organisations. So we will have smaller community screenings with Q&As across the country too. Why did you want to tell the story of your mother and your relationship with her? That's a great question. You know, in the beginning I didn't even think I wanted to tell that story, but once the film got going I realised that there was this drive in me, this need to make kind of to make sense out of chaos and to create meaning of all of the experiences in my life so far and and you know that involved a lot of you know early childhood trauma and a lot of confusing things happen so it really helped me to um put a put a narrative and as I say in the film I, I learned to put a frame around the chaos so making the film is like framing that chaos and putting things in order 
And, you know, it also forced me to do um, research about my parents. And um, so it gave me a great understanding of these two people who had been so influential in my life. So, you know, I've been doing, you know, work on my own personal healing and, you know, evolution and self-actualization for many years. And in one way, making this film was um, an extension of that. It was part of that process, you know, making meaning. For me, the film also sort of unpacks this story around the complicated relationships that mothers and daughters can have. I myself, I love my mother. She is one of my best advocates. She is also one of my best critics. And I mean that in a very humbling and kind way and not to reduce her or our relationship. And it's really, I loved the film and for anyone who's listening, please go and see it. Ideally go and see it at an independent film place. Go like the Ritz. Um, Go the Ritz. (laughs) um, For me that was a really important part of it is talking about mother-daughter relationships and the complicated, the complications of that that sort of sit there and normalising that a bit because I think sometimes we can feel a bit of guilt and shame around these relationships. But, yeah, particularly when you have two ambitious, pioneer, outgoing, creative people where you occupy similar spaces, butting heads, challenging each other, and that growth as well is also part of it. Just yes, yes, yes. I mean, they don't call families nuclear for nothing, right? (laughs) And um, there's also this saying, you know, like your your family knows how to push your buttons because they installed them. (laughs) So if you take on the, the massive task of working together, the challenge of working together, and in a creative space, I mean, it's just like when you're bound to have, you know, rupture, but you have rupture and repair. And, you know, it's part of relationships. It's, it's how we grow is by kind of butting up against other people and trying to work it out. So, you know, it, it's good, but it, it's not easy working with your family. And, you know, we on mum's film that I shot for her back in the um, 80s, yeah, we, we had a few kind of tense moments. And, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to do it my way and she wanted to do it her way. I thought her way was old-fashioned and, you know, in my arrogance, you know, I was just out of film school. I thought, oh, I know, you know, the best way to make a film. And But, you know, actually the film is better for that, I think. You know, often the result is better for that creative tension. And if you can bear it and if you can not just completely go your separate ways, I think you're, you're ahead of the game. Now, you've shot feature films, documentaries, a vast range of music videos from Prince, U2, Mary J. Blige, Usher, In Excess. I have a particular interest, though, in the work that you've done with Greenpeace um, and Total Environmental Centre, as well as your own local activism around the area. I want to know, what has been your favourite things to film? Okay, so my favourite thing to film is just like going around with the camera, particularly with nature, like, you know, there's some shots of Maroubra Beach in the film. Oh, my God, that is just I'm in heaven alone doing that. But it, it doesn't really contribute much to the world except, you know, creatively. But what I loved doing when I was at Greenpeace, for example, was filming actions. And, you know, you've got these amazing brave activists in their climbing gear scaling buildings just being up there really quite dangerous situations but very you know with safety front of mind 
and documenting that and being part of it. And actually there's a real adrenaline when you're part of a, a really important action like to stop a coal mine or to, you know, ch- help, you know, change policy of some sort. And it's really creative and it's unpredictable, you know. At, you know, at some point the police are going to come. At one point I got arrested um, up, a, you know, um, filming the, an, an action against the Malls Creek um, coal mine. That was a bit tough, I have to say. Um, it's a bit rough being in the back of a paddy wagon, you know, and do, knowing you're doing something that is helping to change the world for the better, really nothing beats that. You're saying you don't get that same rise out of filming rappers twerk? Definitely not. <laughs> I mean, you know, in in the rock and roll pop industry, there's a lot of I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of ego anywhere. But, you know, it's so much about image and illusion, project people projecting their fantasies onto someone and someone thinking that they are that megastar and and you know, as a cinematographer filming these you know, rock stars, you're kind of buying into the fantasy. And what you're doing is you're kind of trying to figure out how people how these, you know, stars want to be seen and, and how people how people want to see them. And you just try to make them look beautiful. And it's completely, I mean it's great. It, it is beautiful, but it's also unrealistic. And it's also a bit shallow because, you know, especially in that mainstream industry you are basically helping record companies sell records so you're part of a machinery you know a money-making machinery that that's kind of the looking at it from the dark side you know on the positive side filming music videos is a really creative space you know it's very different to say filming feature films which have because there's so much money and time and you have they have to be it's almost military you know style organization it's kind of anything goes on rock clips and it's it was kind of like my second film school. You get to experiment, you get to try out new equipment, you can fail because there's always something else you can do. And, you know, music is it's not a cerebral kind of um, perceptive kind of field. You're, it's a very creative music and image together. As you can have a lot of fun and I did have a lot of fun. I want to talk about your activism. For a period of time you put down your camera and became an activist, why? That's a great question. So after so many years of looking at the world through a lens, I felt really disconnected from it actually and separate from what was happening. And um, what what changed me was that I, I made this documentary about a woman called Nancy Hillier who was a botany local and she'd been an activist her whole life and she was fighting this big chemical company, Orica. And I, when during the making of this documentary, I, I would look at her through the lens and I'm like, I want to do what she's doing. I want to feel empowered. I want to feel part of the world. I want to be making a change. I don't want to just be looking at the world through a lens and having this something turn up on screen. So it was really part of me. I don't know, becoming, having more agency and becoming more empowered as a person. And, oh, my God, it's so exciting being, you know, you're being, I mean, you would have this completely. You are where the action is, where decisions are being made, where policy is being formed and put into place. I mean, there's, there's really nothing more exciting than that. 
you know, and, and sometimes I would, you know, help write speeches, you know, propose speeches for, you know, MPs in Parliament and things. Oh, my God, it was, like, intoxicating. And I know it's not, you know, it's not totally real either and it's not the only place that change happens but it is a very focused place that change happens. So that was more exciting than filming rock stars for sure. The environment has been a particular focus of yours. What are your thoughts on Australia's action or inaction towards climate change to date? Oh, I'm embarrassed to be an Australian, quite frankly. it's. Um, I remember back, you know, when Bob Hawke was around and, you know, we could feel good as a nation, you know, good things were happening. But I'm just appalled. Um, I, you know, I'm virtually speechless, you know. It's just disgusting what's, what um, this government, this federal government has done um, to not just to the environment but to Australians. Who, and I think Australians want to do the right thing. You know, they dutifully recycle, you know, and they, you know, they try to switch off their lights. They're trying to do these little things. And there's so much for poten- potential for renewable energy in this country. We've got the resources. We've got the sun and the wind and all this new technology coming online. And, you know, it's money for the mates, you know. It's shoring up the coal industry and it's just, and, you know, it's not going to be great for our economy. We're going to have to transition faster now. We've, we've lost a decade, basically. I mean, you know, I'll, I could just go on and on about it. But, yeah, basically... We get an F on that front. And I feel like we're an international embarrassment. So what are your thoughts on net zero by 2050? Well, it sounds fine, but it's really the least we could do. And we need to be going harder and faster. We need to have a strong target by 2030. And, you know, why not aim for net zero by 2030? I mean, we can can do it. You know, we have the know-how. We've got the technology. All we need is the willpower and the right people in government. Now, on Could You Voice, we have a special place reserved for highlighting women, in particular addressing underrepresentation of women. Sort of going back to women in film, there's been a lot of dialogue in recent years regarding not only the lack of recognition um, that women receive, sexism in roles, sexual assault of women in the industry, I'm interested to know your thoughts on this and if you think things are changing. Well, the film industry is a great example and particular cinematography and women have been just terribly underrepresented in the film industry for many, many years. I think it's been around 2% for quite a while. Uh, It's a traditional male area. And when my mum began as a filmmaker, she shot her own film in 1957 single-handedly and she went to the government film board and asked for a job as a cinematographer. They they just laughed her out of the room. They said, you know, you're not going to be strong enough to carry the cameras. So that is changing and it's changing because of the really hard work by a lot of women in a lot of areas and um, especially in Australia and uh, the women are quite active in this body called the Australian Cinematographer Society. One of the issues on film sets is about childcare. You know, film shoots go routinely 12, 14-hour days and then, you know, at the end of the day you often have to watch rushes and do prep for the next day. They're gruelling hours and um, it's pretty hard for women who are mothers to juggle both 
So childcare is something that really needs to be addressed, as, as is equal pay. You know, when I was a cinematographer, I would, I would experience a lot of sexism. But like my mum, I don't know where she got it from, but she just had this thing of brushing it off and not letting it affect her. But I know it affected a lot of women. And um, you really had to work so much harder to get them, to get the blokes on side. And, you know, I was, I was sexually harassed while I was shooting. You know, one guy I was doing this, I was on a feature film and I was doing this tracking shot and it was a very sensitive scene and the actor was basically crying. It was a very delicate scene and we were tracking in towards this actor. Um, this key grip, who's a guy that pushes the dolly along, who I relied on, to get the film made, he stuck his tongue in his ear, in my ear, and and it was obviously a dare, and all the men cracked up, and I I couldn't stop the shot because it was such an important shot, but I tried to kind of get rid of him, and you know at that point I was a lot younger and not as confident as I am now, and I didn't I basically didn't address it, I just laughed it off, because I I feel like I couldn't risk getting this guy offside because I needed him to you know help get the movie in the can. So it's a tricky situation and not, you know, most men are pretty good and they're getting better, but there's still this kind of old guard and there are, there's still always a couple of men who really resent having a woman as his boss in what is traditionally a male area. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but it is changing. There are some fabulous women cinematographers around. There's Mandy Walker, who, you know, who works in Hollywood, Justin Kerrigan, who's just won an ACS award. There's a lot of women coming up through the ranks now and it's really great to see. What about the underrepresentation of women in awards? I think the lack of representation of women in the awards process, I think it's a reflection of the underrepresentation of women in the industry. I mean, I, I don't know about the judging panels. It may, you know, they do need to be gender neutral. And if that's not the case, that needs to be changed. But I, it's really, I, I think probably women overperform in awards compared to the amount of representation in the industry. You know, often women have to overachieve to, you know, be treated as equal. And it is changing, but, it, you know, again, it's slow. And it'll be great to see, it'll be great to see a woman win um, the Oscar for Best Cinematography. That, that should happen soon, I would say. Film in Australia and in particular in New South Wales, what needs to be done to support the Aussie film industry? Well, because Australia is a small economy, it is not going to be sustaining just to rely on ticket sales. Um, so the, the Australian industry has always and will continue to need government support. But over the last 10 or so years, government funding for both feature films and documentaries has just been eroded. Screen Australia keeps getting cut. The National Film and Sound Archive has kept getting cut, 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 and um, it's just not sustainable. So we need a government that actually values culture and the arts as much as they value sport. And I've got nothing against sport. I love sport. I love soccer. I used to play soccer. I love the Matildas. But we need, you know, this this country has had had this habit of kind of um, minimalizing the value of culture and art. And I think that needs to turn around. But at the moment, it's going in the wrong direction. But basically, it's funding. What are your thoughts on quotas for streaming services? 
to have Australian content? I think that is absolutely necessary. And we, we have had quotas over the years in terms of cinema and TV production, and I don't see why we shouldn't have quotas for Australian production for streaming as well. Because, uh, you know, the US and Europe, but particularly the US, it's such a big economy, we will get swamped and then we will lose our, you know, our unique culture. Um, and we need to, we really need to support that and the individuality of Australian stories to speak up. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all for quotas. Now, your mother is clearly a significant influence in your life. Who are the other great influences for you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think my influences are they're like um, environmentalists and social justice leaders. Um, Vandana Shiva, um, she's an amazing Indian activist. And, in fact, there's a film at the Sydney Film Festival this, this year about her. Filmmakers like Chris Marker, um, James Baldwin, the American writer. There's a fabulous film called I Am Not Your Negro. Yeah, uh, who else? And mostly activists, you know, Nelson Mandela, of course, uh, Martin Luther King. In Australia, uh, Faith Bandler, she was a First Nations activist, brilliant person. Yeah, and I've had quite a, a strong... Um, you know, parallel spiritual life and I've done a lot of kind of meditation. So there's a few Buddhist monks along the way that I, I really respect. Now, before I let you go, there are three very tough questions we ask all the guests that come onto Could You Voice. You must declare the best beach in the eastern suburbs, where sells the best coffee and where you can get the best burger. Go. Maroubra Beach, the Bay Bakehouse, Bobby's at Bondi um, and they had fantastic gluten-free, uh, a gluten-free replacement for the burger. So, yeah, there we go. Maroubra, the Bay Bakehouse for coffee and Bobby's for burgers. Delicious. Everyone go and check it out. I haven't been there but you've heard it from the horse's mouth. And if people would like to learn more about you and your films, where should they head to? Uh, just go to whenthecamerastoppedrolling.film or just Google it, our website should come up. And, yeah, it should have information on screenings. It's got a lot of background information on the film. The trailer is there. Yeah, so, so come and have a look and I'd lo love to hear any feedback and, you know, have conversations like this one with lots of other people. Jan, thank you for joining us on Could You Voice. Thank you very much. Thanks, Marjorie, for having me. What an inspiring woman. Now, all I can say is get out and watch this documentary. It is amazing. You've been listening to Coogee Voice. Mm -hmm.